know if we actually sang that song and believed what it said, we probably wouldn't have to do much preaching tonight. Did you know that? I really mean that. If we believed Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, um, and we sung that from the brain to the heart and believed it with all of our heart, what I have to say to you tonight um, would probably fade away into becoming obsolete if we really believed these words. And so uh, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, so go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'll read 25 through 34 for you, and then we'll have just a few thoughts to share about this text. Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not so much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's the word of the Lord. You know, historians, sociologists, psychologists, theologians, um, uh, whatever uh, realm of academia you want to think about, have been amazed by and impressed by this particular uh, section of the Bible. Whether they're believers or not, people are impressed with the Sermon on the Mount. They're impressed by its simplicity and its complexity. They're impressed by um, how eloquent it is. In fact, it's probably rated as one of the top three to five speeches in the history of the world. Um, Gettysburg Address is up there. Um, some others are there. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is one of the most impressive public speeches that's ever been given. And one of the things that makes it so impressive to people that study literature and people that study public address and things of that nature is its endurance, is its perseverance. And what they mean by that is that in this particular day and age, Jesus' words had meaning, it had significance, it had value. It was addressing problems that people of that day were dealing with, and he was answering some of their questions. He was addressing their heart issues, and it was very valuable to those listeners to hear those words in the day of Jesus when he was living. They recognized who the audience was. 
what the social context was, and that Jesus was actually addressing their needs. But what impresses people so much, whether they're believers or not, is that it actually continues to address the needs of people. That this piece of literature, this work right here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, continues to be an active um, address to the needs of mankind. You see, what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is really addressing um, what plagues mankind. What has plagued mankind from the beginning and what continues to plague mankind all throughout history up until this day in, very, in, in which we live, that there are constant things that we continue to plague ourselves with that, that drag us down, that harm us, that bother us, that make us who we're not supposed to be. And Jesus, at the very root of that, is addressing it. And if you were to boil it down into its most simplest form, like, like what is Jesus really attacking in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7? What is he really trying to get after? And you could probably distill it down into this one thought. It's the problem of self-trust. The problem of self-reliance. Now, in this text, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is dealing with actually two different groups. There's one group that you're well aware of um, that, that I don't, uh, most people don't anticipate or, or think that this group was actually there listening to him. This is the group of the religious um, Pharisees and the Sadducees that, that were uh, the religious elite of that day. They're talked about a lot in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but most people don't think that they were the ones that were actually there. Um, but they had the problem of self-reliance and self-trust. But also, the people Jesus most likely were addressing were not the super religious, but the irreligious. The ones who were um, distant from religion. The ones who were probably most likely kept out of religion. And they too had the same problem of self-trust and self-reliance. You see, in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who um, trust in their own righteousness because they believe in what they are and who they are and what they do and they think that they can approach God because of all of that. Don't be like that. But also in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't think that you can be distant from God or, or approach God all by yourself. And so what becomes interesting in Matthew chapter 6 is he exposes one of the major problems of self-reliance. Probably one of the core issues that we see exploding on the scene today in our culture one of the major, major plagues of humanity when we rely solely upon ourselves is the very thing Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Do not be anxious. Don't worry. Don't worry. You see, what's interesting about this is uh, there's a few things Jesus says. First of all, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Any of you ever experienced anxiety, worry? <laughs> Amy's like, both hands. You've got a kid. Like, you know what worry is, right? <laughs> um, you know, a few months back uh, in the fall, I spent a little bit of time talking about anxiety and how um, our culture right now has reached a perfect storm of epidemic levels of anxiety, worry. And th those variables or those, those things that have come together for that perfect storm would be, first of all, in our culture, we exalt the self. We believe in self-esteem. We believe in self-righteousness. We believe in self-determination, right? 
You can pick your own gender. You can pick your own uh, orientation. We believe in all that self-oriented directing life. We have exalted the self. So we have that variable. And then we have an explosion of options for people. The very phrase, you can be anything you want to be, just permeates our culture. And it's just simply not true. Like, I can't be the starting center for the San Antonio Spurs. I just actually can't do that. I, I can't. And that's okay. So you have the complete reliance upon self, the false notion that you can do anything, unlimited choices, that combined with what we believe to be, we live on a stage, we have a watching world. Our lives are lived in front of thousands and thousands of people we believe. So we have all of the responsibility in the world falling upon me, self, with millions of choices that I have to pick from, and I've got millions of people watching me to see if I'm going to do it right or not. And you put all of those things together and you shake it up and you have what we see today, an epidemic, a plague level of worry and anxiety. You know what worry really is at its root? When, when we worry, when we have anxiety, you know what it really, at, at its root, at its core, what it is? Worry is a result of our inability to control an outcome. When an outcome is outside of my control, and I can't actually control what's going to happen. One of the great results, one of the things that happens is we oftentimes worry about that. So maybe the uh, outcome is out of my control because I don't have the resources to influence something. Maybe uh, I don't have the money or the wealth to be able to influence an outcome. Or maybe we uh, lack not just resources, but maybe ability. Maybe I can't actually control an outcome because I don't have the ability to do that. It's outside of my power control. And sometimes we lack, um, we, we worry because uh, we can't control an outcome because we lack also access. There are some outcomes that are just outside of your control. They're just outside of your control and we worry about them. And what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't actually give us a great answer in chapter 6 about worry. Okay? Uh, it's kind of funny. You follow along with Jesus. He actually walks you through some logical questions. Do you notice how many questions he asked in Matthew chapter 6 there? There's a lot of questions, right? He says, why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Or why do you worry about what you're going to eat? And then he asked the great one uh, that, that we all probably have asked ourselves or asked someone else's. How much can you actually add to your life by worrying, right? He walks us through a series of logical questions, not necessarily to answer our problem of worry, but to expose us to the folly of worry. You see, his logic is showing us that worry is actually kind of illogical. He's walking us through that. Now, uh, what's kind of interesting, if you're like me, um, and then maybe you're like, your house is like our house, when I worry, logic never really pulls me up out of my worry. You know what I mean? Like I could be anxious about something. I could be worried about something. And Lisa's not necessarily worried about it. She might walk me through some questions like, it's going to be fine. Just think about this, this, and this. And her logic doesn't pull me up out of my worry, right? And then she might actually someday worry about something. And I sit there and think, that's going to be fine. What are you worried about? You know? And then I, I usually end up with like, the, well, you can't control it. So what are you going to worry about it for? You know? And that never seems to work or help. Maybe you notice like our ability just to reason about the fact that we can't control something doesn't alleviate worry. 
Just being aware of the fact that you cannot control the outcome does not solve your worry. See, if you pay really close attention to what Jesus is saying, not just in this text, but all the way through chapter 6, he's actually exposing the false belief that self can run your own life. And he's showing you something deeper. Go back to the beginning of chapter 6. He says, hey, you probably shouldn't practice your self-righteousness in front of people. And and there's a series of, in chapter 5 he does, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. In chapter 6, he has a series of do not, do not, do not. And in chapter 6, at the beginning there, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, meaning don't put your giving on display. You see, what the Pharisees were doing was relying on themselves to get their prestige and honor. If I announce the giving that I'm doing for people, they're going to think I'm awesome. I can control my own garnering of my attention. And he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't depend on yourself to get recognition. Okay, and then he says down, and you look down, and I believe it's verse, um, uh, where is it? Here we go, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard uh, for their many words. What he's saying is, don't just rely on your own intellect and ability to heap up many words for God to hear you. That's not going to work either. He goes on and on, uh, down in verse um, 18, when you fast, do not look gloomy. Meaning, don't try to get attention for your religious devotion. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Meaning, don't just try to take control of determining what your future is going to hold all by yourself. And then finally, he gets down to verse 25, like I said, and he says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Well, how can Jesus say this, all these things? What gives him that ability? You see, what he's doing is not just pointing us through a series of questions to reveal to us that self cannot solve life or that self is not the only place that we should rely upon for our future inheritance, for our prestige, our honor, for um, solving all the outcomes that we might worry about. He's saying self is not the answer, but his questions are actually pointing us to something else because in every section, look what he does. In verse 4, when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's he pointing us to? You don't need your left hand to announce to the world what your right hand is doing with your giving because your father already knows. You don't need to announce to the world so that they honor you. God already knows. Or if you look down in verse uh, 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you opening. So he says, you don't have to stand on the street and pray so that people say, wow, that's a praying person. Your father already knows you pray. Verse, um, I believe it's 18. Look in verse 18. When you're fasting, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus is showing to us about anxiety, about worry, is that there actually is one who does know there actually is one that you can trust because here's the point you just knowing that you can't control the outcome of will I get this house or will I get this job or will things be okay tomorrow or or what's going to happen with my retirement fund or will my kids grow up and be okay all of those things that we worry about right will I get the right job will I meet the right person all these things that we worry about and we say because I can't guarantee the outcome 
I'm anxious about it. Jesus is saying, just because you know that you can't control the outcome will not relieve your worry. But there's one thing that will relieve your worry. Knowing there's someone you can trust. You see, we've bought into this lie when it comes to self-reliance that not trusting anybody else but only trusting yourself is not really risky or not really trust. You ever, if I want to do something right, I just do it my, come on, self, right? We've bought into this illusion that if I just cut off trusting anybody else or God, I have eliminated the risk of trust. Trusting yourself is still risky and still should cause worry. You see, look what Jesus is leading us to. Go down to verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, look at this question. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, what he's doing for us is driving us to this point of saying, you are going to trust somebody for the outcomes of your life. You will. And there's only one place that you can trust that will relieve your worry. And it's not found in yourself. It's not even found in others. It's not found in karma or luck. Go all the way down to chapter 7, verse 7. He's going to point you to look inward and look outward to know what's deeply upward. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Okay, thank you, Jesus, for this philosophical explanation. What's he mean by that? Look in verse 9. He's going to tell you a story. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? So try to draw out of this sort of biblical language for a moment and just ask yourself that question. Which of you who have, let's say, if, even if you don't have children, a close friend or a sibling, which of you and your child comes to you and says, father or mother, dad or mom, daddy, mommy, can I have a snack? Can I have something, please? Would say, here's something inedible. Anybody here do that? I mean, even like, you know, like, even like poor parenting doesn't necessarily do that, right? I mean, I mean even at the basic level, like, we provide for our children. He's saying, look around and say, which parent in here would maliciously say to a child who is their child that comes to them and says, can I please have something of nourishment? And says, Psh, here's a stone. The chances are pretty low, right? I mean, we've, even, even in a poor parenting situation. Or he says in verse 10, look at this. If he asks for a fish, which is a little bit... Um, uh, more of an ask, you know, it's a little bit more of an ask than bread. So bread was like commonly known, you know, commonly available. He says, if, if he just wants some nourishment, would you just throw him something with no nourishment? But if he even comes and asks for something a little bit more, fish was a delicacy, something nice to eat. And he wants something nice. How many of your children, when they come to you and don't just ask for the bare minimum, but come to you and say, I, I would like something nice. How many of you would not just give them um, not just a stone, but something that would harm them. He says, if they ask for a fish, how many of you would give them a serpent? Would you really give them something that would harm them? So he's pointing us to look at ourselves and those around us, and he makes this point. Verse 11, If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, all of chapter 6, not just this point, is driving you to be exposed of the plague of self-reliance and the ultimate relief of the deliverance of God, your true Father. You actually won't um, have your guilt or your worry relieved by just knowing that you can't solve your own worry. You won't. You will have to place your trust somewhere to solve worry. You might trust somebody, a person. You might trust a system. You might trust, you know, some lucky rabbit's foot, but you're going to place your trust somewhere to deal with your worry or you'll be rattled with worry your whole life. And what Jesus is trying to drive you to is to look with, with just some, some thought at those that have parents. And he says, how many of them would actually give bad things to their children? And if you know that, you have a father who then when you ask for something would then know how to give you good gifts. Now you notice something interesting here. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, Jesus knows something about what the father gives, doesn't he? He's pretty in tune with what the father gives. In fact, in a later place in John, John chapter 3, after he deals with Nicodemus, Jesus himself would discuss what God would be willing to give. You know the famous verse, right? For God so... Love the world that he did what? Does Jesus know something about what the Father's willing to give? So as he stands there in front of these irreligious castaways of society, and he says, whether you are religious or irreligious, trusting yourself will never solve your life. You'll be worried or you'll place your trust in something that can't deliver. But there's a Father who always gives you what's good. How does he know? Because the very gift that is the ultimate good is standing in front of them saying, I know, I'm here. In just a little while, I'll give myself for you. Even though you don't know it, even though you might reject it, I'm giving myself for you so you might have the ultimate good, the ability not just to call him God or King, but to call him Father. And if you know him as Father, you'll know him as good. And the challenge to you, when you feel worried this week, when you feel anxious this week, when something is uncertain and an outcome is, you just don't know how an outcome is going to come or what it's going to be like. In that moment, realize this. You will place your trust somewhere. Give the Father of your Father in heaven a chance with your trust. Just give him a chance and see what happens. He's worthy of your trust because he's earned it and what he's given you already. Um, if that's something you've not received, we're here to help you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's come as we stand and sing.